Um, trying to understand that there has been in, in history a movement that they believed they were doing the right thing. They believed that their philosophy was the right thing, even if it involved the Holocaust or whatever it involved. It's kind mm. of it's kind of a hard bullet to swallow, right? Because it's just well, like... Yeah, no, I think no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. That uh, uh, you know, philosophy and ideology is already abstract. As Marta was mentioning, these issues are always important to us, so we get emotionally right, worked up about it. And so it's very hard to think about a lot of these issues. And then at the same time, when you have a philosophy that seems like the right philosophy to you, Mm -hmm. if you were born into it and pretty much everybody in your culture is somewhere in that territory it's very difficult to step outside of that intellectual framework and understand how other people think of the world Hello, my name is Marta. Hello, my name is Pedro. And this is Yellow Talks, where we talk about awesome topics with great people. And today with us, we have Stephen Higgs, uh, who is a professor of philosophy at Rock Forest University. He's also a director at the Center of Ethics and Entrepreneurship. But today we're going to talk about his documentary, Nietzsche, the Nazis and National Socialism. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Hi, welcome to the show. Marta. Hi, Pedro. Thanks for inviting me. Hi, nice to have you here. Well, we got to, make, to meet you because of the documentary that you have in YouTube. Uh, I think the documentary was recorded uh, many years ago, but it has a great quality. And mm -hmm. we were really interested in, in the documentary because you kind of give uh, an overview of why Nazism happens. And also, most importantly, from the philosophical point of view, we'll delve into that later on. But uh, if you can describe quickly what uh, the term national socialism is for the audience and what's the difference mm -hmm. between fascism uh, that would be great. Ah, uh, yes. Well, uh, uh, my thesis is that it's a, it's an accurately named movement. They chose the words very well. So nationalism and socialism. And the the uh, the individuals who started the party in the uh, uh, late 19 teens, shortly after World War One was over. They were socialists of a certain sort. Now, socialism is a very broad label. There are many versions of socialism. And this particular group wanted to distinguish their version of socialism, collective management of resources, government control of the economy, a kind of anti-capitalist rhetoric, anti-free market, anti-private property. But at the same time, they wanted to distinguish themselves from the other versions of socialism that thought, economics is extremely important, or even that economics is the most fundamental issue. So for example, the communists following Karl Marx, you know, their version of socialism is to say that economics is the driver of history, it's the driver of everything else, culture, religion, politics is superficial relative to these underlying economic drivers. So uh, and, and the communists believe that human beings were uh, part of an international community, that all of the people or the workers especially had common economic interests. And so national differences are not really, really that important. So they were international socialists. And that's the label the communists would often use for, for their movement. So the national socialists, by choosing the label national are intentionally distinguishing their version of socialism from the communist version. We are national socialism. So it's going to be socialism pitched at the level of a nation, not internationally. And the argument is that each nation is importantly and perhaps fundamentally culturally different, ethnically different, different language, customs, religion, ways of doing and those things are the most important collectivity that should be that should be named so they chose the name national socialism and initially it was a merger of some yet smaller parties that were interested in socialism and some a little more interested in nationalism but they thought uh, i think it was in 1919 that a merger uh, and forming a new party would uh, would be, would capture uh, capture importantly now, at the tail end of your question, you mentioned fascism. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I can speak to say that, yes, I think national socialism and fascism are siblings. You know, they're like uh, older brother, younger brother or brother, sister, some mm-hmm. sort of close relationship. Because in the case of fascism, uh, the name technically and originally comes from Benito Mussolini, mm-hmm. who was also actually working with some philosophers. And he had made exactly the same move. Mussolini until he was in his 30s, was a socialist of the Marxist variety, very close to uh, classical Marxism. Uh, you know, so he uh, he worked to organize the workers, and he was a journalist and a researcher and so forth. But he was very struck by what had happened in World War I, mm-hmm. because the Marxist or the communist analysis is that it's all economic forces in collision. And so all of these different big capitalist countries are now colliding with each other. And that's what World War I is all about. And then the workers will realize that they are all equally oppressed by their capitalist masters in the different countries. And capitalism will destroy itself. And out of that will then come the workers' communist revolution. But what Mussolini noticed was that what was really important to the workers in all of these different countries, Italy especially, Germany, France, was not their uh, class membership, but their national membership. Mm. So what really mattered to the workers was, I'm an Italian and we're fighting those those other guys, or I'm German or I'm British. Mm. And so he wanted to, uh, his move was then to say, if we're going to be effective as socialists, We cannot pitch socialism as an international movement. Marx was wrong. It has to be nationalistic. It has to be socialism for the Italian people in this case. Now, there are some variations between Italian fascism and German national socialism, but they are minor in terms of the overall thematic similarities. We know very well here in Spain because we have Franco, as you may, as you already know. Salazar in Portugal. Yeah. They're all yeah. yes, working the same territory. Yeah, I have a question. Like right now in current society, you always hear the term Nazism everywhere, and especially when you refer to right-wing parties, is that fair to say? Because um, from what I hear, is you know, there's huge difference, right? Uh, uh, well, yes, I, I think uh, it's one of those words that tends to be overused. I mean, initially, it's, uh, it's, it's a self-descriptive label that the theoreticians for a party or for a movement will choose. And uh, the ones that are more articulate, they will work with professional intellectuals and define their terms and their programs quite clearly. But then often uh, when it gets picked up uh, more popularly, it gets broadened and spread out and used more imprecisely. And then, of course, over time, uh, people who are enemies of that particular movement will use it as a pejorative, as an insult, and they uh, they will often quite self-consciously want to uh, use guilt by association. So here we have people who are in the movement, but people who will talk to them or who are close. Well, you also are in that movement, and so do these people. So then it becomes this catch-all phrase. So yeah, calling people communist or calling them a fascist or even now calling everybody a racist, mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, it almost becomes a, a, a meaningless term. So that's very frustrating for people who want to use terms accurately. Yeah. You know, it, it's important when we're having these important uh, political discussions. Now, at the same time, I do think from the European perspective, now I'm, I'm a North American mm. and the labels are often used differently in North America compared to Latin America and, uh, and, and to Europe. Mm. I think it is fair to more associate fascism with people on the right. And I'm going to put that in quotation marks. And then other versions of socialism that really emphasize economic matters as more on the left. Mm-hmm. So I think it is, it's true of European politics that the groups that the people on the left are more interested in have been economic groups. And the people that the groups on the right have been more interested in have been cultural and ethnic groups. Mm. So there is a, there is a historical uh, accuracy to that. Now, all of that, though, 
needs working out and we have to avoid the sloppy use that lots of people just throw words around. No worries. Yeah, I think that's my feeling too. And I don't know, would you agree that that seems to be a quite um, kind of a difficult topic and a difficult, difficult word as well? Um, like, I don't know how it is in the North America, but in, I'm, I'm Polish and definitely when I heard the, um, the word Nazism or fascism, it, it creates a lot of emotions. But I, I think well, that a lot of people actually don't know the background. They just have a sort of a label of the word, but they never kind of dive deep to even understand why it was why it came to be like this. And yeah. um, one one thing we recently we watched the movie. It's not very scientific. It's the one that won Oscars, I think, All Quiet on the West Western Front. Um, mm. And I think it's um, at the end of it, it's kind of showing the repercussions that Germany will get after the First World War. Could we say that this was sort of a beginning of the whole like movement in a way? Hmm. I would not say it was the beginning. I would say that was a very important cultural uh, uh, phenomenon for for Germany because you know Germany was devastated by the war, uh, and that devastation took a particular form. Now. I, I want to say that this is important, but I don't think it's the most important factor because mm -hmm. uh, there are lots of countries that lose wars throughout history. Yeah. And how they react to losing the war uh, depends on lots of other factors. So if you look at all of the countries that have lost wars in history and have been just devastated, how many of them were electing national socialists a few years later? Not mm. very many of them. Yeah. So why they thought National Socialism was the best response 10 years later to losing the war, I think you need to bring in some, some other factors. Now, nonetheless, I, I, I do think there was uh, an important ideological component that if you look at German thinking prior to World War I, uh, and I think this is going to be the more, more important thing for why this war and this loss was so especially devastating to the Germans, was that by the time we, World War I is beginning, German intellectuals uh, who had been very influential on much of German culture, German culture was very well-read, well-educated people. I think uh, the statistics show they were the number one most literate most educated people in the world, you know, the number of books that were purchased, newspapers that were read, and 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 so forth. Uh, but the the uh, the intellectual culture was very much uh, uh, nationalistic, very much socialistic, and very much authoritarian. Mm -hmm. right? uh, so Germany, intellectually and culturally, was very far from the the more anglo nations that were much more liberal and democratic republican and uh, and decentralized political political authority but at the same time there was a there was a kind of overlay from the major thinkers in the german pantheon so if you think of uh, you know someone like karl marx who was of course was german mm -hmm. what uh, uh, and he had a phd in philosophy and his economic philosophy has an entire philosophical basis behind it. But it wasn't just that you know we are more authoritarian and in favor of dictatorship or the proletariat. There was this idea that there was a historical necessity that communism has to come, right? mm -hmm. that history is moving in a certain direction, and there's really nothing that we can do to stop. Now, that's a left-wing version of we are going to go in a progressive direction necessarily, and that Germany has a special place in that historical necessity, because it's the most advanced, perhaps, nation. Now, the so-called right-wing version, we find uh, almost the same idea. So you have George Hegel, who is the most important kind of philosopher on the right, uh, uh, and he is arguing that, again, history is moving in a certain direction. It's uh, God's plan for the entire world working out through certain special individuals and special peoples to take history to the next stage. And so, again, you've got this notion that there is this necessary advance and progress that history has to go through. Uh, and again, the idea there was that Germany has a special place in this historical necessity. And that is very widespread among German intellectuals and 
the thinking German public. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, they are looking at the West as they think of it, and they're looking at Britain and they're looking at America. And from their perspective, those nations seem soft. Mm -hmm. They seem flabby, right? So the ideal there is you're going to get a job uh, working in a shop or you're going to have your own little farm, right? And you're, you're going to uh, let everybody vote mm -hmm. and everybody just wants to have nice stuff and they eat a little bit too much food and there's nothing tough and strong. And you're saying just pursue happiness and be comfortable. So from their perspective, they seem like decadent, weak nations that cannot possibly uh, prevail against Germany, which has this almost God-given or historically necessary left-wing given purpose to take mankind to, to the next level. So. When the war was fought and Germany lost the war, it was a devastation, but mm. it wasn't a normal devastation. It's like, how on earth could we possibly lose the war? And it just blows their mind. Okay, I get it. Because one of the, one of the things that struck me the most uh, watching the documentary, you have to understand that we have been born in democracy, right? Like, um, trying to understand that there has been in in history a movement that they believed they were doing the right thing. They believed that their philosophy was the right thing, even if it involved the Holocaust or whatever it involved. It's kind mm -hmm. of, it's kind of a hard bullet to swallow, right? Because it's just well, like yeah, no. I think no. You're absolutely right. Yeah. That uh, uh, you know, philosophy and ideology is already abstract. As Marta was mentioning, these issues are always important to us, so we get emotionally right worked up about it. And so it's very hard to think about a lot of these issues. And then at the same time, when you have a philosophy that seems like the right philosophy to you, mm -hmm. if you were born into it, and pretty much everybody in your culture is somewhere in that territory, it's very difficult to step outside of that intellectual framework and understand how other people think of the world. Uh, unless you spend a lot of time and you train yourself, it's it's difficult to do. And it's very easy to say, oh, that's just crazy. That's just wicked. That's just ridiculous. And not to take that position seriously. Yeah, because the, the usual explanation when we are taught history is that, you know, I mean, they don't tell us like that. But, you know, the impression that you have is that Germans are the time they were brutes. They were, you know, maybe were in, but under the influence of the of Hitler because he was an enchanter or, you know, lots of reasons that try to explain something that behind the scenes is not the truth. Behind the scenes, like he was elected democratically, democratically, like 99% of people voted for him. And they actually believed the philosophy behind, right? And it's hard, it's hard to understand. It's hard yes, to understand. No, abs yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, he with th that 99% uh, uh, vote uh, in, in 1933, you do want to put a, a, a little question mark with mm. respect to that, because that came after Hitler had already been appointed chancellor, mm. and then he's putting it to vote and, and getting an affirmation. So, um, uh, but it was a vote. I mean, yeah. People mm -hmm. did not have a gun to their head, mm. and they were not forced to do so. But I do want to take a little bit more seriously the votes that took place before Hitler was appointed to chancellor, because all of those were uh, you know, very good democratically run elections. So Weimar Republic, it had all kinds of problems in the 1920s and on into the 1930s and lots and lots of elections, but they were all legitimate elections right for for the most part and you could see the nazis would get this number of votes and then they would lose a little and then they would gain some more lose a little and then by the time they won the decisive uh uh vote they had received 40 something percent of the of the popular vote and that's uh you know in <laughs> that's a huge number yeah. in a very legitimate election so it says something it's also on these on these other rejections it's important to say that the nazis got uh, 40 something percent of the vote. I think it was 43 percent uh, of, of, of the vote. Uh, and there have been American presidents and British prime ministers and so on who have been become number one person in their country with that much or less percentage of the of the vote. Mm -hmm. But it's also important to say to come back to this first point about the socialism and the variations on socialism is that uh, the, the socialist Democrats 
I think were number two. And the Communist Party was number three. So you have the mm -hmm. top three parties in a legitimate election in early 1930s Germany. Uh, and well over half of the German population is voting for some kind of socialism. So that says something about where the political culture is at the time. Yeah, I'm actually wondering, um... What were people sort of hearing at schools and what were the conversation between people? Of course, we were not there, but uh, kind of based on knowledge that we have, like what, what was the topic? What were people, like kids being taught at the time? Because, of course, this also yeah. shaped the decisions that people were made. Uh, so who this, made this would politics. be in the 1920s and early 1930s or after they came to power? In the 1920s, 1930s. Yeah, well, certainly in the 1920s, uh, there would be much more plurality mm -hmm. of, uh, of of opinion. Uh, and there would be you know, a large number of schools that would be teaching a more standardized curriculum, but then still lots of variation because there are schools that are more religious and some that are more secular, some that uh, uh, are trying to uh, educate only uh, people from elite families and people uh, and those that are more focused on educating the uh, the masses or people who have less money so you would find more plurality there mm -hmm. and uh, i don't have expertise you know, in doing comparison of the curricula at the the many hundreds of schools around germany at that at that time the important thing though for me would be that all of the people who are teachers uh, uh if you then say you know these are people who are very well educated. If you're going to become a teacher at a German school in the 1920s, uh, you have to be very well educated. And there are lots of university graduates who uh, may have wanted to have a career as a professor, but they couldn't get a professor job. So they go to teach at a high school. And Germany had a large number of very well educated intellectuals who became teachers. Mm -hmm. And then uh, what you would then ask is, well, what would they have learned then at their university training that they then would be uh, thinking in uh, thinking in terms of. And they're uh, the most important and popular uh, 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 professors and the most widely read public intellectuals uh, would include a huge number of people who were uh, advocates of no national socialist ideology. So if you think of uh, people like Oswald Spengler, who was not a Nazi, uh, but his views were, uh, he wrote The Decline of the West, which you know sold millions of copies and translated into all sorts of languages. But the point would be that the National Socialist leadership recognized that very much of Spengler is close to their ideology. Mm -hmm. So they were courting him to try to get him to, to, uh, to join the party explicitly. And he thought about it, but he rejected the idea, partly because he didn't like Hitler's personality, which mm -hmm. is not really an intellectual reason, but also that he uh, he was more pessimistic. He his his main objection was that he thought the National Socialists were too optimistic. Mm -hmm. They thought uh, you know that they could they could make this great beautiful new new world, but uh, uh, Spengler thought that uh, Germany was in a decline phase and it had to it had to decline. Or uh, Müller Vandenbroek, who wrote a book. Uh, I think it was published in 1923, called The Third Reich. Right? So you know, if you, you know, we think of the Third Reich, and that's <laughs> uh, National Socialism, but this is yeah. 10 years before the Nazis came to power, mm -hmm. uh, a guy arguing for uh, uh, basically Third Reich political philosophy. And he was very much an advocate of National Socialist policy, and his books sold in the millions, uh, and and went and was very well, very well read. So then you can see uh, lots of other public intellectuals, not only university professors, arguing for some variation on what we now would call the uh, you know Nazi political philosophy. And at which point did the Nazis decide that it was a good idea to? go abroad and start conquering Europe and everything like because it, it seems like a big leap right it, it just went out wild the movement or yeah well obviously it went through various phases and you know first in the 1920s uh the the Weimar Republic was a republic uh with separations of power and it was largely democratic so 
the Nazis uh, had to be a democratic party in that sense and play by the rules. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, they did play by the rules. They would do some thuggish, more violent actions and so forth, but other parties were doing the same thing as well. But by and large, they were within. So their, their first order of business was to build up a national uh, political movement and then to succeed at coming to power within Germany mm -hmm. and then taking Germany in the direction that they that they wanted to go. But at the same time, if you think ethnicity matters to you most fundamentally, that's the nationalism part, uh, then uh, all of these uh, uh, national socialist uh, uh, political thinkers and theoreticians uh, were aware of the history uh, of, of who the German people were and that you know, they had some in you know, northeastern France and some in Switzerland and some in the Czech Republic and some in Poland and so on. And so they were very early on interested in some sort of unification of all of the Germanic peoples. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, it becomes uh, you know partly a matter of how, uh, individuals who are coming to power and how uh, uh, how much territorial ambition they they turn to. Now, the other part of this then is, it's not only that from the 1920s and quite early on, they're interested in unifying all of the Germans, but they do have the idea that within Europe and particularly within Germany, there are lots of peoples who they don't think of as properly German. And so they want to get mm -hmm. rid of those people. And you can see the development of this. You know, At first, we just need to you know, kind of isolate them within, say, Germany. We'll just have them be in their own ghettos or in their own areas. Or maybe we should just, you know, eliminate their civil rights and not let them participate in the political process, but they can stay in Germany. Or maybe we should uh, uh, start uh, thinking about getting rid of them, encouraging them to to emigrate and, uh, and, and to leave. Uh, and then at, at various points, you start to see suggestions that, we need to do something more ruthless. And that's where you start to see the, the idea that grew into the Holocaust starting to, to develop. Uh, but then again, that's not all of the national socialists in the 1920s uh, and how far they're going to go at that point is still quite theoretical because they haven't yet even come to power in Germany. So all of those uh, later developments become more pronounced, more explicit, and more acted upon after 1933, after the Nazis uh, uh, come to power. But it is important to say that while the Nazis were playing the democratic game, uh, for the most part, in the 20s and 1930s, they were very explicit that they were not democratic. You know, if you read their party program, they say, no, we, uh, you know, we need to have, <laughs> democracy is bad, republicanism is bad, we need to have an authoritarian regime with a small cadre at the top, and we need to have a, a fewer, uh, a single supreme leader. So we are instrumentally democratic now, but our program is going to be to abolish democracy once we come to power, if you vote for us. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, I'm also wondering, was the... Um... We talked about it was a lot of this sort of um i don't want to say hatred but in a way it was the view was based on ethnicity ethnicity not economics as much um was there any reason for example because we know that um jewish population was catered in in a like a big numbers and i know there were a lot of jewish people in europe at the time in general but was there any economical reason there, there as well or was it just purely you're not german like you don't belong here like just get out yeah, I, I think all of those things are are mixed together. <clears throat> and there, there are longstanding historical issues. There were, you know, to their credit, there were lots of Germans who were perfectly fine with assimilating uh, Jews and members of various religions. So Catholics and Protestants and uh, uh, even a large number of people who were not at all religious. Uh, and so there was religious plurality and uh, a significant amount of tolerance in the, in, the, in the 20s by historical European standards. But then at the same time, you do have a, a large number of conspiracy theories already, uh, part some for historical religious reasons, 
if you are very strong in your Christianity mm-hmm. and you have a more literalist understanding of religious history, then you will believe that the Jews were responsible for betraying Jesus and for his death. And so you're never going to forgive them. You see them fundamentally as, as religious enemies. But as you're suggesting, there were people for whom uh, economic issues are are more important. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the important historical factors here is that uh, uh, Christianity, uh, for theological reasons, had uh, always been very much against loaning money and charging interest for loaning money. The idea there was, as Jesus had said, if somebody else needs money, you should give it to them as an act of charity. You shouldn't lend it to them and then charge an interest and try to make a profit on that. Mm -hmm. So for many centuries, Christianity forbade the charging of interest. Now, there was nothing within Judaism, though, that said charging interest on money was a bad thing. So uh, Christians were in many Christian countries forbidden from forming financial institutions that would lend money, the early banks and then engaging in increasingly capitalistic type financial innovations as the as the modern world came on. And so you did have a disproportionate number of Jewish people who would go into that uh, that uh, that line of work. And so many of the first banking fortunes and finance fortunes came from uh, from Jewish families. And so they then would have relative to their numbers, a disproportionate uh, 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 economic impact. And in many cases, it would be uh, actually Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice, is brilliant on this. Uh, so I recommend that to your readers or just watch the movie version, The Merchant of Venice. Uh, it's, it's very well done right on this. So if you imagine, though, you are a Christian monarch and you, uh, you, you want to go to war, you know, there were all of those wars in European history, but wars are very expensive. Uh, and so you have to borrow money to finance your war. Well, who are you going to go to to have to borrow the money? And then you know, as a Christian, you think of yourself as superior to those Jews who are down there. But now you have to go and be nice and say, would you please lend me some money right, to these, these Jewish people? And so the, the, the cultural dynamic in the mix is very, very poisoned. So all of this is, uh, is, uh, is there. And then we do know that the Jews, in addition to the religious issues, and, and and the economic issues they are ethnic ethnically you know, they have their own customs and in many cases people have a hard time recognizing other people's customs as legitimate they just seem weird and alien and so uh, uh, just just for uh, more straight ethnic reasons you, you you feel discomfort being around people who are ethnically too different so all of that is long time in European history, a long time in German history, and all of that still is circulating in the 1920s. And the National Socialists, of course, are importantly using the Jews and all of that anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism consciously as part of their political program. Okay. Um, Given the fact that we are talking all the time that philosophy plays a big role in how Nazism play out. Um, was, who do you think is, is the person that took a big role uh, from from philosophy mm-hmm. point of view? Like you mentioned Nietzsche uh, yeah. in your documentary. Is he the yes. main one? Yeah, cert- certainly Nietzsche. Uh, I mentioned earlier Hegel. Mm. I mentioned Marx. So just to take a little sidestep, for example, uh, to go back to the question of fascism and Italian fascism, one of the very important documents, uh, founding documents of Italian fascism is an article, uh, it's actually a short monograph written by Benito Mussolini and uh, Giovanni Gentile, who was a professor of philosophy and a very well-regarded, one of the most famous philosophers in Italy. And Mussolini teamed up with him to write the official doctrine of what fascism is. So that's a very clear case of a politician teaming up with a philosopher to form an ideology. And also Alfredo Rocco, another Italian philosopher is important here. Now, in the case of, 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 of Germany, uh, philosophers who are going to be important are, in addition to the three that we've just mentioned, but also Martin Heidegger. 
And Martin Heidegger, uh, already by the 1920s, was recognized as the most important and brilliant philosopher in Germany. And still, like 100 years later, if you ask professional philosophers who the most important philosophers of the last century are, all of them will put Heidegger on their top list. You know, they might hate him or they might love him, but Heidegger is is, is right up there. Uh, and this is in Germany. You know, the German philosophers are the best trained in the world in the in the 1920s. So uh, Heidegger and Heidegger was a was a national socialist. You know, he joined the party. He was a gung ho supporter of, of of national socialism. And then many of the other uh, intellectuals, uh, you know, had PhDs in philosophy, and they are arguing recognizably for this would not be party national socialism with a capital N and capital S, but for national socialist doctrines uh, in the 1920s. So I would also uh, uh, say, uh, we come back to Hegel and say more about him and Nietzsche and say more about him, uh, but also Karl Marx. And this is perhaps a surprising one, but uh, we focus a lot of course on Adolf Hitler but uh, probably the number two or number three most important Nazi of all time was Joseph Goebbels, who was the party's chief ideologist and propagandist and controller. And he had a PhD, uh, a very, very well-educated man. And Joseph Goebbels was in love with Karl Marx. You know, he quoted Karl Marx. Uh, uh, he thought, you know, Marxist... Uh, philosophy was great and wonderful, hated the capitalists, hated people who made money. And uh, Goebbels's uh, rhetoric, uh, uh, even as a national socialist, is filled with Marxist language right, and, and tropes. Now, he is one of the ones, though, for whom probably the economic issues are a little bit more important than the nationalistic mm -hmm. issues. For Hitler, the nationalism issues are probably a little more important than the economic issues. And then if you start talking about Goering and, and all of the other uh, high-level Nazi leadership, you'll have different emphases on which things are, are more important. So uh, of the big guns, the very most important, though, I would say Hegel, uh, uh, Nietzsche, Marx, Heidegger uh, would all be huge philosophers, all of them with PhDs in philosophy, and all of them are important contributors to national socialist ideology. Mm. I'm wondering, I'm going to go a little bit like um, on a high level of the topic. Um, was there anything that particularly surprised you when you were kind of setting the topic and doing research for a documentary that you were like, no way? <laughs> it could be anything well, that comes to your mind. Yeah. Well, it was a couple of things. You know, when I went through university, um, <clears throat> one of the things that, uh, I always thought it was kind of suspicious and ridiculous, even when I was a teenager, was the idea that the political spectrum should be arrayed from left to right. Mm -hmm. That's why I've been kind of putting left and right in quotation marks. And what I was taught, uh, and I remember actually hearing this in high school, was that at the far left, you had communism and Karl Marx. But then at the far right end of the political spectrum, you had the fascists and the national socialists. And so people like Hitler and, and Mussolini. Uh, and so uh, that then make, portrays them as polar opposites, you know, as far away from each other as you can possibly get. So when I, but uh, I remember when I was a, an undergraduate student thinking that can't be right because you know, if you then have this spectrum of far left and far right, where would you put people who are liberals, mm -hmm. who are who are Democrats? And it didn't make conceptual sense to me to say that in some sense. We're just taking Karl Marx and Adolf Hitler and we're compromising, you know, in various ways to work out some middle territory. It's like, no, it's not a compromise. It's a different kind of political political philosophy. So the, one of the things that was surprising to me, though, was how much the people on the, the, the so-called far right, right, had come out of the far left or even when they had defected from the far left, uh, still thought of themselves as being on the left politically. Mm -hmm. Now, the left and right are still metaphorical terms, and you have to add some actual content to them. But uh, uh, you know what you find in common is you have this strong collectivism on the left of you know, economic classes, and then you have 
collectivism on the right. I mean, there it's just typically more ethnic groups. You have this idea that we're not peaceful, that we are, we all hate each other and we're driven by these group conflicts uh, rather than this idea of peace and trade and harmony. Uh, and, and both of them are explicitly saying we can't be democratic and we can't be Republican. We need to have dictatorship of the proletariat and violent revolution, or we need to have authoritarian strong man, right? And, and, and so on. So that struck me, the more I read into it, how they were very close to each other at a certain level of a certain level of abstraction. So that was one of the, uh, one of the surprising things. Uh, and then, uh, I'll pause right there. That was probably the number one, but I could say more things, but I'll kick it back to you. Okay. okay. I have a twofold question. Um, World War II World War, World War was like a conflict of two main philosophies, like this is a generalization, but it was collectivism against liberalism, right? More, more or less. Mm. Yeah. But you know, <clears throat> like we won the war, let's put it this way, but ideas are hard to erase. So my first question is have we really won i mean and if not are we really in danger of repeating history again uh mm -hmm. like what are the main philosophies uh, rising in the world yeah. nowadays no that, that that's a that's a great question i have a, a draft for an article um mm -hmm. on this historical issue and i want to call it the germans won the war Mm. <laughs> you know, in fact, picking up on this theme. So, so what, what you're suggesting is exactly right. The physical confrontation between nations that were more individualistic, liberal, democratic, republican in variations, but that's why they were allied with each other. Mm. And then the nations that were more authoritarian and collectivistic, uh, that's why they were allied with each other. When that physical confrontation occurred, yes, the, the liberal, individualist, democratic, republican nations, they won, they won the war. And then it was also the case that uh, uh, after uh, the war was over and we realized how horrible the, the National Socialist regime had been, including mm -hmm. the Holocaust, which was just devastating to everyone, that uh, kind of National Socialism and fascism fell out of favor for perhaps 50 years. And so then the next 50 year chunk of history really is some sort of you know, liberal individualism against collectivist socialism in the Soviet Union. So we have Cold War politics. But then uh, we know 1989 through 1981, the Soviet Union and all of its associated uh, kind of uh, client states, they collapse. And again, we, we won the Cold War, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so at that point, uh, everybody thinks, well, we're all going to be liberal, democratic, republican, capitalists, right, of some sort or some sort or other. But uh, this is the staying power and the importance of philosophy. So we beat the fascists and we beat the national socialists on the battlefield, but those ideas were not ever defeated. Uh, and the same thing is true now a generation communism and its variations on socialism, they lost terribly over the course of the 20th century. But the ideas were not defeated intellectually. And so what we are seeing right now, just in the last five or six years, is people who did not live through the history, uh, people who did not learn the history very well in school, all of those ideas then are coming back. And so we have a very strong resurgence of various kinds of fascism and national socialism. Mm -hmm various versions of left-wing socialism as well. Of course, there's still lots of people who are, are liberal democratic. So we are having exactly the same ideological debates and discussions and the same uh, political party shifts and alignments in the 2020s that were happening in the 1920s. So mm -hmm. uh, we've, we have in that sense come full circle. Now, why I want to say the Germans won the war, obviously, that doesn't mean the physical war, it means the intellectual war. Because what we find is that the ideas that were generated by German intellectuals, for the most part, right, so thinkers like the ones we've mentioned before, you know, Nietzsche and Heidegger, they're still in the mix. And they're importantly in the mix right now. Karl Marx, obviously, is still 
in the mix, another mm -hmm. German intellectual. Carl Schmidt is still in the mix. And so all of these German intellectuals are being rehabilitated by people that we now think of as being on the nationalistic right. I would throw in there, for example, Alexander Dugin, the Russian philosopher, who's you know the most famous of the Russian philosophers right now. Sometimes he's called Putin's brain. I don't know exactly how true that is, but he has huge stature, and he is a Heideggerian. He explicitly says, I am a disciple of Martin Heidegger. His philosophy is absolutely correct, and we just need to take Heideggerian philosophy and adapt it to the Russian context but it's the exact same ideas right, coming back again. And the same thing I would say is happening on the left, uh, where Marx is being rehabilitated right once again. In this case, it's, a, it's German philosophy, but it went through a French route for the most part. So Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida and the other famous French postmodernists, as we call them, they're now a generation in the past, but all of them are disciples of Marx and Nietzsche and Heidegger, and they will explicitly tell you they are disciples of those three figures, taking a kind of left-wing ideology and rehabilitating it for this generation. So uh, it's still German philosophy versus whatever the opposite of that is philosophically. That's interesting, so many years later. I have mm. just, just a question, just a thought. I wonder what's the role of like, because um, now obviously we have so much access to social media, internet, and there's a lot of sort of um, stories online and not necessarily are real or not. I just wonder if that actually are doing a bit of a disservice and maybe showing some of the ideologies of philosophies and then maybe brighter lights there that they should be uh -huh. shown or? Well, uh, I think that's 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 got to be part of the, the game. So if we are liberal in the generic political sense. Then I think what that means is that means we need to have free minds and mm -hmm. freedom of action, but uh, also we need to learn how to uh, think freely and act freely. Mm -hmm. And so that means uh, being exposed to the most important debates on all of the most important issues. And so a good education by parents and teachers and other people will say, uh, 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 you need to know that not everybody is going to agree with you yeah. on everything. And uh, even if we think liberal individualistic ideas are the best ones, you need to not just repeat them like a robot because we told you they are true. You really need to understand them. And so that means you need to get into the psychology and the philosophy and, and learn something about the history. And you also need to, so that you are intellectually armed, understand that some very smart people have mm -hmm. come up with good arguments for anti-liberal and anti-individualistic positions. So I think uh, uh, it's <clears throat> part of a healthy liberal culture that there will be people who advocate anti-liberal ideals. Mm -hmm. They will use all of the tools like social media that really are developed by liberal uh, institutions uh, to make their case. And we have to uh, uh, freely allow them to do so and enter into those debates. And the important thing is that we need to be able to out-argue them and make the case for some kind of liberal individualism more effectively than their enemies do. And that has to happen every single generation. That's very true. Pedro, do you have any more questions? Because we are we have a few minutes left, so we can use the time before we ask final questions. And I have lots of questions, but I'm going to try to choose one. Like, I've always uh, made this thought experiment sometimes. If the Germans had really won the physical war, mm. how, how what would the world look like now? Mm. I yeah. Mean, <laughs> All of these counterfactual histories questions or, or what if history questions are, are interesting. Uh, I started to watch, there was a t television series based exactly on that that premise. Uh, so I know that, sorry? In Netflix, I can't remember the title, but yeah, I, I think I know which one. Yeah, so the idea is that, yeah, the Germans and the Japanese won the war. And so, you know, in the United States, the Japanese are controlling the Western 
and the, the the Germans are controlling the controlling the Easter. And there, I think that's that's fascinating, but it is largely speculative. So mm -hmm. uh, I think the best thing to do would be to look at historical uh, examples. So there are lots of cases, for example, where uh, a country was conquered by another dominant country, and it basically went away. It became absorbed into the conquering culture. It's also the case, and there are lots of examples of this, where a country lost the war, and then it was temporarily absorbed into the larger country, but they, in the next generation, fought back. Mm -hmm. and perhaps they went underground, and they succeeded in throwing off the, the overthrowers. So yeah, my sense is, you know, if the Germans had won the war, uh, you know, my, my guess, best guess is that uh, they could have taken, say, all of Europe and and all of all of Britain, and then we would have some sort of, you know, United States of Europe, right? But overseen by by the Germans. How long that would have lasted before kind of native nationalistic assertiveness would have sprung up, you know, and then and the the, the the Spaniards and the British and the Norwegians would have. Mm -hmm. regain their independence that I that I don't know but I think uh, the the look of the I don't think they would have been able to cross the Atlantic and take over North America mm -hmm. for example mm -hmm. nor I don't do I think the China the Japanese rather even if they had been successful in the Asian war been able to cross the Pacific so I think you would have mm -hmm. you know, three big blocks but how long those three big blocks would be stable for I have no idea yeah, I think I lied. I'm going to ask uh, one more question quickly I'll go for it. because you are uh, more educated than us and you have a uh, more, more, a, a more uh, comprehensive answer to this question. Like it always fascinates me that there are tribes, there are countries around the world that are stagnated in time. They never change. Right. And whereas mm. others like, you know, Europe in the last two centuries have gone through so many changes. What what's the main trigger in those changes for a given tribe? It's just it's just philosophy. It is what was the main if you had to say one main drive? What is the main drive that makes tribes change? Yeah, well, I, I think what's interesting you put that question negatively or positively. I think in some cases there are tribes that don't change, and that would be the negative version, and uh, they don't change largely for environmental reasons. So I think they are in a, a circumstance of, uh, say, resource impoverishment. You know, they live in a, a largely desert area. So if I think mm -hmm. of the San people in Botswana or the aboriginals of, uh, of Australia would be two, two good mm -hmm. examples here. And so much of their time is devoted simply to staying alive, that you don't have the leisure space to start becoming inventive, to come up with new ideas for social organization or new technologies. So they will remain static for, for a certain amount of time. But uh, if you are in a more resource rich place and you do enough philosophy to start thinking just you know, stealing from each other and constantly going to war is not going to be good for anybody. Let's be a little more, you know, trading and tolerant. So you get yourself to the point where there's enough peace and stability and res cultural respect for basic reasonable laws, then you're going to generate some wealth and you're going to generate the amount of time that human cleverness can start to think more abstractly, more long-term. And at that point, things can take off very quickly if people come on to kind of social ideas that really leverage uh, human creativity, or they come up with technological ideas that leverage human productivity. Yeah, because I, I I asked the question because I don't think people really realize the role of philosophy in in human in humanity, like in how it triggers so many changes. Like you, you put it that way, when we have time to think, then it's impossible. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. So just you know to take one very interesting thread, you think for example of religion and the role of religion. So Europe was largely static for many, many centuries up until the 1500s and 1600s or so. But then you could say, and this would just be one line of argument, you could say along comes someone like Martin Luther and uh, uh, he and the early other protesters who become Protestants, they want to reform the church. And so the Reformation gets launched. Now, they were true believers in a very fundamental version of Christianity 
but there was an unintended consequence of just one of their ideas, the idea that instead of getting to God by going through the hierarchy of the church, every individual should be able to have his or her own relationship with mm -hmm. God. Right? And so that's a really a big philosophical idea right there. Uh, now, but then that means if everybody's going to have their own relationship with God, they need to be able to understand God's word. And that means they need to be able to read the Bible. Mm -hmm. And that means we need to translate the Bible out of Greek and Latin into the languages of Italian and French and English so everybody can read the Bible for themselves. Now, Luther and the other reformers' ideas that everybody's going to read the Bible and believe it is true and get into a traditional relationship with God. But the unintended consequence is that suddenly you have millions of people who now can read mm -hmm. and they're reading important abstract things and they start as humans do having arguments about theological mm -hmm. issues and as soon as people start reading and having arguments they get smarter and they also get curious about other books and so that one philosophical revolution has a, just a huge social uh, implication for the way western history went so that's a that's, interesting point <laughs> yeah Hi, I'll cheat one ask I'll, I'll ask one question. Hopefully it's not too vague. Um what do you think is the state of philosophy in 2023? Oh, yes. Well, that's a very hard question to to uh, to answer. I think uh, overall the state of philosophy is healthy in 2023 compared to say 50 years ago when I was a kid. Uh in the 1950s, 60s and into the early 1970s, philosophy was in a very skeptical place where the leading schools of philosophy were uh, explicitly we don't know anything <laughs> mm. or they were uh, uh pessimistic about the 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 prospects for their for their for their for their philosophies uh but i do think uh, starting in the 1980s especially you started to see philosophers who are on our average are very interested in ideas getting bored this is putting it too casually with all of the old skeptical arguments and uh, starting to say, well, uh, let's try some new ideas. And they became uh, some of them more interested in science, uh, in, in biotechnology, in applied ethics. Uh, there was a resurgence in restudying the great historical philosophers and, and, and doing new and better translations and working out. So philosophy, I think, uh, uh, became healthier. Now, it's very hard to make a generalization about a big movement because it's also now international. Right. It's not the case that, you know, there's just some top philosophy departments in France and England and, and America. Instead, there's great philosophy being done all over the all over the world. And as you're alluding to, it's also gone on social media. So now instead of just, you know, maybe a few thousand uh, undergraduate students taking serious philosophy at universities every year, you've got millions mm -hmm. of young people self-studying philosophy as well. So I think on both of those scores, philosophy is, uh, is, is healthier than it was 50 years ago. That's really good news. Last question. No, I mean, we can go with personal questions. <laughs> okay. Well, we can do two in one, actually. Um, that, that kind of connected. Could you tell us what is the thing you learned the hard way? Uh, <clears throat> huh. Well, that's a hard question. Yeah. That is a hard. There's one more following, but I think it's easier. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, the, the the one that comes to mind, I would say, is um, you know when I decided that I wanted to become a philosopher. Mm -hmm. So I started to take philosophy seriously, uh, and I you know I had my views on various sorts of sorts of issues. But one of the things I learned very quickly was that if you're going to be serious about ideas, if you really think the truth matters then you have to, in a way, let yourself go into philosophies that initially you think are wrongheaded and crazy. Mm -hmm. You have to really give them a fair shot, read their best advocates, and not simply look for you know, one little mistake that you can then set the whole thing aside. There's a reason why the great philosophers are thought of as great philosophers. And uh, 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 on the, the emotional side, you mentioned the emotional side earlier. 
when you believe certain things are important and you have your sense of personal identity and what your important values and your religious values and your political values are, that, that uh, you are going to feel personally attacked mm. every time you do that, right? that you are putting yourself on the, on the line. And there are, we know, lots of shortcuts and ways of cheating that people will engage in at that point. They'll say, I don't want to do that hard work, but I also I don't want to risk anything that I think really is important and, and, and true to me. And so they will sabotage their own ability to do philosophy seriously. Now, we're, we're typically well aware of the way this comes out in social media, right? all of the way that people will avoid argument or turn it into a personal attack, right, and, and so on. So I remember uh, reading some very skeptical philosophies and, you know, I started thinking, wow, do we really actually know anything, right? And, mm -hmm. and then all of the, you know, the values, because you know, I was getting a little bit cynical, I would say, in my late teens, as I was, uh, you know, learning more about Canadian politics, where I grew up in American politics and world politics. Uh, and so... You know, thinking, you know, maybe there are no, there is no genuine fairness and justice in the world, that everything is this, you know, d grubby power struggle and everybody's hypocritical and so on. Uh, but at the same time, I still had some you know, strong liberal individualism. Uh, and I thought there was something true, but all of those were attacked and assaulted. And I had to really think through all of them on a regular, on a regular basis. Uh, and that also included in social context. So, uh, in one way, I was very fortunate where I went to university uh, in Canada, the University of Guelph, they had a large number of philosophers of very different philosophical perspectives, but not very many um, uh, philosophy majors for some reason. So a lot of my courses ended up being just me and the professor, like okay. a one-on-one -on -one course, or two students and the professor. And so uh, there are ways you can hide from your professor and, and do avoidance, or or you can say, no, I'm really going to ask these hard questions, and I'm going to let the professor, you know, challenge all of my opinions and all of my arguments. You know, my professor is like Socrates, and I'm still the young guy, right at that point. That I'm really going to go for that and not be scared of the process and and work through that. But it, that's a psychologically hard lesson, and I remember. Um, you know, at one point where I was feeling, you know, I've been reading very skeptical and all kinds of very anti-liberal and anti-individualistic people. And I was feeling like, wow, whew, I'm really <laughs> under assault here, but I'm not going to run away. I'm going to, mm. going to go for it. So um, uh, I would say uh, we all are going to go through that right, at some point. And uh, you have to go for it. Make the leap. Right, uh, Be courageous. The truth really matters, and you know, as as Nietzsche said, uh, I think this is rhetorically clever, right? That which does not kill you does, in fact, right, make you <laughs> make you stronger. Beautiful, that's right. That's, that's the only way to become strong. We have we had the closing question, but I think you sort of answered it already. Unless there's something else, um, we usually ask uh, our guests if they have any sort of advice or any thought to share with the audience. Mm -hmm. What you said already was, was great, but maybe you have something else <laughs> to okay. tell us now. Uh, no, especially for young people. <clears throat> yeah, I would say, yeah, since I, you know, I'm a professor at a university, and so I'm, I'm dealing with you know, 18 to 22-year-old people on a, on a regular basis. Uh, you know, the, the general advice I, I, I like to give to students coming to university is uh, when you are in your first year of university, uh, take 10 different courses in 10 things you've never studied before, mm -hmm. if you possibly can. So really broaden your horizons. There's a lot of very, very interesting stuff out there. And the other thing I would say is uh, don't commit to any one philosophy or politics or religion too quickly. Mm -hmm. right? It's very easy when you're young and you're smart to understand a philosophical or a political position. And almost all of them have able advocates and some internal consistency. And so it's easy to be seduced very quickly. And part of, I think, of human psychology is we want answers to questions, and we want to have a, a comprehensive philosophy as part of our intellectual machinery. 
Uh, but don't get there too quickly and uh, go through the process. And before you settle on one philosophy, make sure you are aware of the major competitors mm-hmm. and you've given them a fair shot and set yourself the project of uh, perhaps being like at a at a smorgasbord type restaurant where you can pick and choose from all mm-hmm. of the different recipes and form your own personal philosophy. Put yourself on that quest and that's the most rewarding, uh, the rewarding quest. That's awesome. Thanks I wish we were at the university, but we are not 22 anymore. <laughs> <Nothing> <laughs> Maybe more. at one point again. No, I want to go back to university again. <laughs> <laughs> Same, but well, we can educate ourselves differently these days. But uh, that's a great advice. Yeah, great advice. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And we hope we can host you in the future to talk about any other subject. And yeah, uh, we wish you the best. Thank you. All right, no, no, pleasure. No. Great questions, and yeah, thanks for the time. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.